welcome to Muscle Maven Radio 2021. We made it, guys. We're here. We made it through 2020. Congratulations. Even if it was, you know, kicking and screaming or dragged across the finish line, we we got it. We're here. I'm not sure uh, what 2021 has in store for any of us, um, but we didn't know what 2020 had in store either in January last year. And like I said, here we are. Here you are. Here I am. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, whether you're a OG listener or a brand new one, I appreciate you being here. I'm very excited for today's guest. I'm very excited for the lineup I, of guests I have over the next couple of weeks. Um, Lots going on work-wise, at least in 2021, which will help keep me busy and distracted from all the other stuff, which I think is good. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any any New Year's resolutions? It's funny because this conversation comes up every year, and it seems like there's always two camps, right? There's the like, get a resolution, do something about it, figure it out, get to work, or don't do a resolution that's stupid, (laughs) And uh, I don't know, I feel like there's probably a happy medium in there, right? Like there's nothing wrong with feeling a little extra motivated at certain times of the year. And I think that a new year with new possibilities, maybe you spent a couple of weeks slacking off a little bit, nothing wrong with that, but maybe it's kind of giving you the rest and recovery uh, that you need to, to attack some new goals. I usually feel like that. I mean, I don't often set crazy strict goals for January 1st because I prefer consistency. I prefer year-round goals and kind of always reaching for for new fun challenges. But I did take about three weeks off of work in December um, this year, which was pretty huge for me. I don't do that. When you work for yourself, you really don't often take the opportunity to take time off. But I know, and a lot of smart people have told me before that it really does help you reset. You know, you need to step away sometimes. You need to be bored. You need to be restless maybe a little bit, a little uncomfortable with it um, to get you itching to get back and working really hard. And that's how I feel right now. So I feel good about it. I've got a couple projects coming out. One um, that I'm really excited to announce for the end of January that I think is going to really help some folks. I've got another um, program, I guess I can call it, that will be coming out in Q1 of 2021 that I think will be awesome. I've got my pull-up program uh, that I launched late in 2020 that I'm so excited to see people uh, signing up for and using and getting stronger. I'm getting some awesome feedback on that. So that could be a good goal for you. I mean, it's a it's a small one. It's a specific one. Improve your pull-ups. Get a pull-up for the first time, maybe. And I'm here to help you with that. So um, you can find out more information about my pull-up program in the show notes, or you can reach out to me on Instagram. As always, it's in my uh, bio. I'll send you the link, whatever, so you can learn a little bit more about it, see if it's something that interests you. Um, But ultimately, I guess just to wrap up that conversation, because, you know, we have it every year, is just if you want to set a goal and you want to set a strict goal in January, don't let people tell you that it's doomed to fail and that you're corny for doing it. And if you don't really want to set a goal right now because maybe you're exhausted or maybe you're not interested or maybe you're just kind of on top of things year round, that's great, too. Don't let the Internet make you feel judged. Okay. It happens way too much. All right. Moving on. Today's guest is an awesome human being. His name is Dr. Ben Bickman. He wrote the book, Why We Get Sick, which is about insulin resistance, optimal diet, um, and the nearly universal contributing factors as to why we get sick. Um, You know, it can be very complicated. It can be very layered. It can be very specific, but we also see kind of the same things 
over and over and over again when we talk about chronic illness. So uh, Dr. Bickman kind of walks us through this. He talks about how we can approach health from the ground up, address the root issues, and truly understand how our bodies work. Because of course, that is a theme that I talk about in the show all the time, which is empowering yourself to make decisions, to understand things instead of just listening to what other people say, right? It starts with listening, maybe, and then you need to go and do your own research, your own work, your own experimentation. And understanding takes away a lot of that fear and a lot of that confusion. So we talk all about uh, things like why we should focus more on our insulin than our blood sugar. You know, you hear all all about blood sugar regulation and all of those things, but why that may not be as good an indicator of health as our insulin levels. Why a lower carb diet, of course, is still the best approach for most people. Why uh, macronutrient combinations matter. So why um, animal sources are always going to be ideal for protein and fat because they always come together and there's a reason for that. It makes them more bioavailable. It makes them easier for us to ingest and digest and use. So of course, here we go again, animal protein, good stuff. How insulin resistance can impact hormonal health, fertility, a host of other chronic and all too common diseases. And really, he just kind of leaves us with a lot of a lot of hope, I think, about how we can start learning about our health and our bodies, take ownership, take control. That's what we want to do. That's what 2021 is all about. Take control over what you want to do with yourself. Okay? I love it. All right. Without further ado, little ranting this time, but I haven't talked to you guys in a couple of weeks, so bear with me. Here we go. My interview with Dr. Ben Bickman. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, Ashley, my pleasure. What a, what a delight to be able to chat with you. Uh, I'm really excited for you to, I read your book, of course, very good, very full of information. And I'm looking forward to you um, breaking it down in layman's terms, um, because some of it's pretty technical. Uh, and I'm glad that you, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and I'm glad that you can, um, you know, you can really explain things in a way that like every person can understand, which I appreciate, honestly, because as a podcast host, it's it's one skill to be smart and do research and, and put a bunch of information out there. And it's a whole other skill to be able to explain it to people. Oh, um, yeah. So I appreciate you coming on and, and doing that work for us. Oh, my pleasure. It's funny. I was actually just speaking with my students about this, this idea of kind of learning how to explain principles. And when you go to scientific meetings, um, like actual scientific meetings where it's just scientists sharing the recent data, you can always tell which scientists teach undergraduates Yeah, because the scientists that are used to teaching undergraduates just have a way of explaining things that is typically a little better than those that don't have any teaching and they're just purely in the lab. Then it's, you know, they haven't, they haven't had to hone those skills of, of effectively presenting ideas. But when you have a bunch of 20 year olds, you learn fast. <laughs> Yeah. And it, and I mean, it is an important skill too, because, and not to, not to throw any smart people under the bus, because I know a lot of smart people who do a lot of important work, but it, it does show, it's like that whole cliche where it shows like your true understanding of a topic when you can yeah. simplify it for people. Right. Because if, and I have this, I mean, we all have this issue. I'm even thinking about, you know, talking about healthy eating or exercise or, or, you know, fitness coaching, like you want to give every bit of information and you want to give it all right away. And you want all the options for everyone. And it can get so overwhelming and so yep. overcomplicated and to just bring it back down to what are the basic things that anyone can understand and use um, 
that's really like the important thing. So yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Okay. So you wrote the book, why we get sick. And before I even ask you any specific questions, why do we get sick? Just give us, give us the cliffs notes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a bit of an ambitious title, certainly. And that was on purpose. You know, you want to get some attention. You want to, you want to have a grabbing um, title. Uh, the, the premise of the book was, uh, is that there is a common origin that underlies most chronic diseases and that our ongoing failure to not only detect this problem, but also treat the problem means that we will continue to have a rise in these chronic disorders. And so these are things like the most common killers, heart disease, certain cancers, um, fatty liver disease, and Alzheimer's disease and type 2 diabetes, and then other disorders that aren't lethal, things like infertility, for example. So that's the premise. It's that all of these seemingly distinct disorders actually are branches coming off of one common, you know, out of one common root. And, and this is insulin resistance. And that was a conclusion I'd come to over years. I'd been studying insulin resistance as a scientist explicitly for several years. And it wasn't until I'd started teaching undergraduates that I realized just how relevant this was when I had been given my teaching assignment. Um, it was a class called the university had asked me to teach a class called pathophysiology. So the, the sick body basically. And, and I'd never taken that before. I'd never been in that class as, as a student. And so, but I'd had a lot of physiology, but suffice it to say, I was eager to find a strength in each of the topics. So if I was preparing a lecture on hypertension, I would, I wondered, well, is there some relevance to insulin resistance here? Just so I can speak as some kind of authority so the students can, you know, appreciate that they have an expert or at least a knowledgeable professor. And then I found out it was extremely relevant to hypertension. And the same thing just continued to happen as I was going through the different organ systems in presenting my, in preparing my lectures. And so what I would do is devote a little bit of these lectures to highlight, you know, just a few minutes, highlight the, some of the, um, manuscripts that have been published to establish that insulin resistance is causal or exacerbating whatever the disorder was that we were talking about. And the reason I wanted to do that is partly because I thought if we can detect insulin resistance, then it's, it's a one common point of attack that we don't have to give drugs to treat the symptoms of insulin resistance. And then moreover, if we acknowledge the role of insulin resistance, then we can wonder how to best address it directly. And that is going to be lifestyle. It's never going to be a drug. It's going to be lifestyle. It's one thing that when I start to get overwhelmed or freaked out by like how big a problem this is, um, the one thing that kind of brings me back down and makes me feel better is that ultimately the answer is always lifestyle. So whether we're talking about yeah. really specific um, issues or chronic disease, or we're talking about the overarching systemic problem, it still always comes back to these key lifestyle factors that we should all be addressing no matter how healthy or unhealthy we are no matter what challenge that we're trying to address it comes back to these key points which kind of makes me feel better because it's like we're all in this we all have the same lifestyle factors that we need to be looking at and improving upon um so i i don't know i don't know if that should stress me out more or less but it makes me feel better knowing that that oh, no. i guess knowing that it's in our control right Absolutely. I think it ought to, it ought to alleviate concerns and anxieties because then you, you acknowledge this is something in my sphere of influence. It's not, it's not, I'm not subject to some external variable. I can control this. Now that's not easy. 
controlling it isn't simple. You would know this better than me with, with what you've done in helping people get healthier very explicitly and very directly. The, the ideas are simple and that is empowering, mm-hmm. but applying them isn't necessarily simple because then you're dealing with habits and, and even addictions to a point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was hoping that you could kind of break down some terms for me. And one being, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like maybe one of the issues that us lay people, people who are are gathering information from podcasts and books and and online, Mm -hmm. um, one of the kind of issues where we may get caught up is that we tend to focus maybe more on tracking and understanding blood sugar levels than insulin. And so if you could maybe just kind of break down like what the difference is in terms of these numbers and what we're tracking and what we're looking at and why it may be more important to focus on insulin rather than blood glucose. Yep. Yep. Excellent question. Yeah. So that, that is definitely another hope um, in writing the book that people would leave with just the questions you're asking here. So historically, uh, we are obsessed with blood glucose. And and I think that's because maybe a couple reasons, but one, it's just so much easier to measure glucose. We've been able to measure glucose in, in clinical settings, well, even nowadays to the point that we can measure it easily at home for decades. So it makes it a convenient marker. And because of that, perhaps we've looked at type two diabetes, especially, and well, or type one, um, through the lens of glucose, uh, we have a very glucose-centric paradigm uh, with those disorders. But the tragedy is if we look at insulin, especially in the context of type 2 diabetes, it is significantly more sensitive as a marker in tracking the progression of the disease. So I'll elaborate briefly. If we have a patient coming in year after year, and we see that they're gaining weight, we see that their blood pressure is starting to climb, um, and maybe they have a little bit of fatty liver disease or some blood markers that their liver is not doing great, um, or, or infertility, wh- whatever. We would be looking at the patient and tracking their glucose and say, well, but you don't have diabetes. You don't have diabetes. So, so you're doing fine. Unfortunately, by continuing to look at glucose, we often are overlooking insulin. But if we shifted that focus, we would have been, we would have been detecting potentially for 10 or 20 years that the insulin has been climbing. Year upon year, the insulin's getting higher. And so elevated insulin, but normal glucose, that is a state of insulin resistance. That is prediabetes. But because we don't look at the insulin, that variable's off the table, we only look at glucose and just shrug our shoulders because the glucose is normal. Again, if we shift the focus to look at insulin rather than the glucose, now we can detect the problem before the glucose ever changes because it's only when the person has become very insulin resistant now that the now the insulin is so ineffective, it can't even stimulate normal glucose uptake into the muscles, helping the blood glucose stay normal. So now the elevated insulin, normal glucose turns into elevated insulin and now elevated glucose. And then we detect the problem 10 or 20 years after the insulin has already been screaming at the body to pay attention to it, like some overlooked little kid. And, and now we finally well, we, we never do. A conventional medicine would not look at the insulin. And in fact, not only looking at insulin helps us detect the problem sooner, but if we focus on insulin, then we treat it differently. Because by convention, if we're only looking at the glucose, the typical clinical practice will be 
to lower the glucose by any means necessary. So we'd look at the patient with the hypertension and the, and the liver problem. And now we would see, ah, your glucose is elevated. You're diabetic or pre-diabetic. We need to lower that. So let's put you on a drug or, or even worst case scenario, let's put you on an insulin spiking drug like insulin itself or a couple different types of insulin medications called insulin secretagogues. And now we push the insulin to even higher levels and it's enough to overcome the insulin resistance at the muscle at least, well, partly. And then we push the glucose back down, but it's coming at the expense of putting the insulin to super physiological levels. And the reason that is so important is that giving a type two diabetic insulin does not improve any clinical outcome. And in fact, significantly increases the risk of multiple serious clinical outcomes like heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. But it happens in the midst of normal glucose by shoving the insulin up even higher. We put the glucose normal and we're making them fatter and sicker. It's because it's not a glucose disease, it's an insulin disease. And by shoving the insulin higher, just to try to favor the glucose, we're killing the patient. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. That's intense. Um, That's a lot. How, how does one start to understand, test, track their insulin levels? Like would somebody, like, I, I guess part of this goes back to finding the right doctor and being empowered mm -hmm. to ask questions. Mm -hmm. But like, for example, if I am like a generally healthy human being and I'm trying to get some benchmark tests and maybe I do eat a high carb diet, but I'm young and I'm fit and I work out. And so I'm, I don't think that I'm, I'm, you know, it's a concern and maybe I did the CGM and it was telling me yep. that things were kind of fine or whatever, but I wanted to take it a step further and ask these questions and, and go to my doctor and say, I want to know what my insulin levels are. Can somebody even do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Great question, Ashley. Yeah. So I, I liked how you started that, that this bit of the conversation where it really is, it really depends on the clinician, you know, who is the nurse practitioner or the clinic or the physician that you're going to. And, and are they able to do this? And, and I do say able, they, because in some instances, the physician might be interested as well, but depending on the overall healthcare situation, it simply might not be an option in, the, in, in, in all but the most extreme instances. I just had an exchange with someone in the UK and they were elaborating how the, the National Health Service just will not allow them to get their insulin measured. And that's just because it's a very tight budget, you know, and that is a consequence of, of of that more socialized medicine. And, and I don't want to get into politics, but I'm a native Canadian myself. I very much understand the differences um, be between various healthcare systems, including having lived in multiple countries. Um, so, but nevertheless, in some instances, depending on where our listener at the moment is, it, it truly might not be possible. Uh, but, but if it is, get the fasting insulin measured. And if your insulin is less than six microunits and in Canada and in and, and, and UK or Commonwealth, it's going to be in picomoles and that's going to be around, I think 30 to 35 picomoles ish. If it's lower than that, that's a good number. And, and that's good evidence that you're doing all right. Um, however, if you can't get your insulin measured and I'll, there's kind of a poor man's method, a surrogate that actually works pretty well. And that's the triglyceride to HDL ratio. If someone can, and almost every blood test will get that, whether it's in, in Canada, the UK, or in the US, um, it, it'll, it'll always have that. Even though the units will change, the units will be the same. You know, in the US, it's the same units with triglycerides or HDL. In the UK, Canada, it'll be the same different units, but the same within that family. 
take the triglycerides, divide it by the HDL. And if that number is less than 1.5, it's a good sign um, that you're doing all right, that you're insulin sensitive. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm in Canada right now. I think our listeners are kind of all over the place, but I actually just got a new doctor, like a family doctor. I haven't had one for a while, honestly, because I just knock on wood. I haven't really yeah, felt yeah. the need to. No, I get um, it. Yeah. And I, I was like, hey, like I'd love to do just sort of like a benchmark, like across the board, exhaustive, like blood test, just like know where everything is, where all my like mm-hmm. minerals and whatever. And they're like, yeah, eh, we don't. Mm. I'm like, but I, I want really, one yeah. though. <laughs> I'm like, but I want one. So anyway, it's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, so I'm curious though, were you able to get everything you wanted? Well, I ended up and I don't, I should, I don't have the paper here, but he did, he did end up saying like, we'll give you kind of like a, I think he was testing like my iron thyroid, like some of the like big, big things. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was completely comprehensive. And part of that may have been my fault if I went into it fully like locked and loaded, like here is A, B, C, D, what I want. And I didn't really, I was just kind of like, Hey, I'd love like a, you know, the whole shebang. And Give me like, everything. Eh. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, eh, we don't really do that. But I, I feel like probably again, we have to learn to be our own advocates. And I think that if I continued to push and if there were specific things, I'd probably get it, but it's true. It, it requires mm-hmm. effort and it requires, um, the confidence on your part to kind of ask these things of, of people that we have been taught that they're the the experts, they know best and listen to what they say at all costs kind of thing. So um, yeah. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, well said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, in fact, in, in, to, a, to a degree, depending on the relationship that the patient has with the clinician, it, it could be that in my experience, many clinicians are, are surprisingly open-minded mm-hmm. once they see the data. Uh, and, and, and so maybe it gets to the point where the patient actually takes in some printed um, publications this is why I want my insulin measured, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that it, it, perhaps that's enough of a push or an incentive for the clinician to say, all right, well, it's not an easy test to do, but you know what? Uh, I, I can make it happen. Yeah. Um, you said earlier, like, you know, you don't want to get too into politics. There's plenty of that online right now. And yeah. <laughs> I don't, we'll skirt the issue. Cause I feel like sometimes <laughs> you kind of have to, we got to like walk the fine line and talk about it, but I don't tend to necessarily be someone, uh, who wants to get into sort of conspiracy theories or like government, mm-hmm. like why the government is out to get us kind of scenarios. However, the one area that I do tend to believe is is deeply dysfunctional to the, to the point of, of keeping a society sick is to a certain extent our medical system, which I believe does in many cases um, want to err on the side of uh, reactive um, band-aid medicine rather than focusing on lifestyle factors, focusing on things that are not going to make people money um, and that are going to keep less people out of the system. So again, I, you know, yep. I have doctor, I have many friends who are doctors. I absolutely believe in Western medicine, but I do think that our approach to medicine, generally speaking, is um, problematic in that we, we do, I think, focus more on fixing symptoms rather than like getting to the root of the problem. Yeah. And this comes back to what you were saying before about how we look at diabetes and maybe we'll talk about Alzheimer's later, but just general metabolic dysfunction by looking too much at glucose and not enough at insulin. Do, do most doctors not see this either? Or is it just, again, that we're being, we're being taught to look at blood glucose first and then, and then fix this problem. Cause it seems like a glaring and really serious Mm -hmm. issue that doctors would be prescribing insulin to people who already have elevated insulin levels. Like that's scary to me. Yeah, oh, I, I, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. Uh, I, I, I do think it's, it, it is important for us to acknowledge that um, c- companies, entities, even hospitals 
so, so for example, a hospital, if we were to ask someone, what does a hospital do or why does it exist? Someone would say, well, it exists to make people feel better. <clears throat> That's not true. Uh, it, it, I, would, I would argue in a strict sense, it exists to make money. It is, it is a profit making entity. That's not a problem because the method by which it makes its profit is by helping, hopefully helping people feel better. It is simply providing a service. That is its business. Like a grocery store's service is to sell groceries. A hospital service is to sell services that hopefully make someone feel better. Now, I'm not saying there's a perverse incentive there. I don't want to go that far that, uh, that you know, neither of us is saying that, that the hospital wants people to stay sick. Mm -hmm. No, but even drug companies they exist to make money in, in their hope, I would say, let's, let's pretend it's very magnanimous. They're hoping to make money by selling something that helps people feel better. But especially when it comes to metabolic health, type two diabetes, insulin resistance, and all the problems that stem from that, those are not diseases that are caused by a lack of a drug. Those are lifestyle diseases at their very core. And, and, and so the food we eat is the culprit or the cure. And any drug we're taking to try to help is simply addressing a symptom. You cannot hope to fix this problem through a drug. All you can hope is, well, there's no hope. It would just be that you're increasing your drug for the, the, the dose for the drug every year you go in for the subsequent visits. That will be the only course once you've started taking the drugs. You have to realize that this is a lifestyle. These are lifestyle problems and thus they require lifestyle solutions. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is giving me a lot. Oh, also, gonna, one I'm, last thing though. Yeah. One last thing. So with regards to physicians and, and it seems so glaringly obvious, like with conventional medicine, why not just shift the focus to the insulin? I, I, I try to be um, very compassionate in that regard uh, because we only know what we've been taught. And back to what I mentioned earlier, why different entities exist. And I don't mean to sound too much like an economist, but a physician gets paid to see patients. They don't, this physician, he or she does not get paid to go back to their office and flip through all of the published biomedical literature to ask themselves, well, I wonder whether insulin's a better marker than glucose. If they haven't been taught that, they don't get paid to go find those answers. I'm a scientist. I get paid to be curious. I get paid to ask questions. Now, of course, I don't get paid as much. It's not as lucrative to ask questions as it is to see patients. But my, my true hope, even a humble hope, is that as a scientist, I get paid to find answers to questions. I think I've found some answers to some important questions. And my greatest hope is that there then is a clinician, someone who is where the rubber meets the road, who takes the answers the scientist has found and now puts it into practice. Because the physician doesn't get paid to sit around and ask these questions. They truly won't get yeah. They don't, they can't bill that. They don't get paid for that. They yeah. get paid to see patients. That's their job. I think this is why I like conversations like this so much because the nuance and the look, we're all, we're all human beings. So we have biases, but the ability to talk about this in a non extreme way, I think is so mm -hmm. important because conversations online, which is really the only way we can communicate these days is getting increasingly extreme right to the point oh, where sure you're either is. you're either following the side that says if you you know if you question western medicine you're a crazy person and if you think eating healthy is going to fix your problems you're an idiot 
or the other side that's like doctors are out to get you, you know? And so there's no, yeah. but the, the, the answer is always found in the middle in context and nuance and understanding instead of just and communicating. Yeah. As yes. people, I totally agree. We're getting so polarized, so pulled in different directions and, and, and we're losing the ability to just come together and talk. And yeah. one thing I would say about this, and again, not to necessarily make it political, there are so much talk about science is real, science is, we believe in science. There's, there's something very convenient about that sentiment where well, one, as a scientist, I, res, I would never say that. Uh, a science, science is the never ending pursuit of truth. And if you think you know everything, you're done. You're not a scientist anymore, you're a zealot and, and you've, you've, there must always be that deep underlying humility or even self-awareness to realize I might be wrong or what people are telling me they think they know might be wrong. So there should be a tremendous degree of, of not wanting to commit to a, a definitive theory. Um, but but if, when someone's saying science is real, uh, I, I, mean, I agree, I mean, science is real, but, but to think that that means we know all truth is silly, but also that's a double-edged sword or there's two ends to that stick. And so someone's saying science is real. And, and, and so that's why I need to wear a mask, which is fine. I'm not saying don't wear a mask, um, but they would have to realize that you have a whole bunch of scientists that are also saying eating meat is the worst thing in the world and it's mm -hmm. destroying your health and the planet. Well, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to be cynical about the science saying don't eat meat and that it's the worst thing in the world, you would say, I don't think that's true. You should also be careful. But again, I, maybe masks is the wrong analogy here because that's so polarizing of a topic. Yeah. But we should just be careful in, in what we are choosing to believe and acknowledge that in choosing to believe something, we are not acting as scientists, yeah. which is fine. But it should be that we're always trying to understand the truth of, of, a, of a topic, if it's even possible at all. And in, frankly, and in this world, I, I don't think it is always possible, We especially in when it comes to communities and politics. Well, not politics, I shouldn't say that, but communities and, and, and interacting with others and social dynamics and disease dynamics. We all should collectively be very humble um, and, and willing to listen. Yeah. Humble and using critical thinking the way it was initially intended. I think a lot of people think of critical thinking as just being critical of the people that don't already align with mm -hmm, what they mm -hmm. <laughs> agree with. And, you know, it's tough because, again, we are in this sort of hypersensitive world, too, where we're just so concerned with either our entire goal is to provoke and trigger people or we're going out of our way to not do that. And I think, you know, the problem... Or, or we're going out of our way to be provoked. Some exactly. people want to be offended. Desperately, they want to be offended. Yeah. That, to me, is so puzzling but it's, yeah we it need to find is. a better hobby like come on if your yes. your job is going online and looking for things to be pissed off about yeah. but um but the problem too is that again with human nature is this idea that we are drawn to things that are extreme and provoke provocative and titillating and so we're always going to click on the latest thing that says meat is evil and bad for us and going to yep. kill us. Or if you, you know, don't wear a mask, you're trying to kill people. And like, we, yep. we, we gravitate towards that. So again, it goes back to this idea of critical thinking, but also personal responsibility. Um, and the idea that like you were saying, so I like to think of, um, any kind of new information that I get in health and fitness and nutrition and wellness as 
a project that I'm going to undertake and learn as much as I can about and use it potentially as a tool. So even something that I read about that I consider to be almost universally helpful, like something like a lower carb diet approach, mm-hmm. I still, I, 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 I have to refuse this like tendency towards dogma and okay, this is who I am now. I associate this with my personality and my individualism. And if I, if I veer from it, then I am a failure because it's a, it's yep. a losing battle. Right. So I, I look at all of these things, the carnivore diet and, and keto and, and whatever it is fasting. And I just, I consider them tools that are useful that are going to help with my personalized nutrition approach instead of this is the thing and it worked for me and maybe it worked for a lot of people. So it's everything and it's going to work for everybody. And if you don't do it, you're an idiot. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, no, in fact, I, I sometimes get wary of the fact that there may be some who consider me dogmatic in that regard. I mean, even those who would read the book and think, oh, well, Bickman's trying to claim that there's one size fits all. No, yeah. not at all. Uh, there is uh, and I love what you said, where our these tools should never become our identity. Yeah, That is not who Ashley is. It's not who Ben is. We are individuals with all the complexities and nuances of every person, but we have our own experiences. We have our own, well, these tools um, that, we, that you've seen and practiced just very much like I have as I scour the literature and continue to contribute to the body of knowledge in this regard. That doesn't mean we know all the answers and, and that our answers are going to be the answers to everyone's questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you take my book, for example, did I send you a copy of this yet? If you don't have no. it, I got to send it to you. I'm send still it waiting. To you. I will send you a copy. But I mean, yeah, people might look at this and say like, oh, she's the crazy person just trying to tell you to eat organ meats. And yeah, yeah I am. But also I'm not, I'm not trying to convince vegans. I'm not telling you that you need to replace every steak with liver. I'm just trying to yep. open the conversation. And if you actually read the book, you see it. But I'm like, look, I'm not eating it for every meal. But I think it's, it's arbitrary and silly that we consider, you know, heart extreme, but we're eating the rest of the animal. I mean, let's I just totally have a conversation agree. about it right? Like that's anyway, moving on. Okay. So back to insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance. And I want to bring the conversation back to, again, what I think is the vast majority of my listeners, um, who, who would consider themselves falling like in the middle, right? So we're not, maybe, maybe you're not, um, concerned or dealing with diabetes or you're not severely overweight or you, you know, you're, you're not really, you're, you're relatively healthy. Right. Um, but I think that sometimes this vast majority, and maybe it's not a vast majority of us these days, because there's a lot of unhealthy people that are silently invisibly unhealthy, but for the vast majority of us, I feel like we aren't always spoken to, um, in these contexts, because again, we go to the extreme. So we're like, let's talk about people with Alzheimer's. Let's talk about people with unmanaged type two diabetes. Let's talk about people with, with really serious chronic disease. What about the vast majority of us in the middle who are just trying to understand this to prevent um, potential issues down the line? How do we approach this, this mm-hmm. topic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I love what you're saying. The, the fact is most people with poor metabolic health the, the inevitable conclusion is not type two diabetes. Okay. And depending on the person, it's going to be that they're, they're a little overweight and now they have hypertension and that's what scares them. Or they're a little overweight and they have terrible triglycerides and terrible HDL. So dyslipidemia, and that's what scares them. Or it's the, the cognitive decline that they've seen in their, their parents and, and, or even in themselves or the infertility that I keep mentioning. It doesn't have to be an obvious metabolic problem, but everything I just said, is in fact a metabolic problem. And, and by that, I mean, there is significant connection to insulin resistance. 
And so we, we, if this is, you know, anyone listening, if I just described you or anything similar, then to me, the, the first rule is control carbohydrates. Simply it is, I would almost guarantee anyone listening to this and, and something I said sort of struck a chord. Um, then it's, it's time to look at the carbohydrates that you're eating. Now, I am not saying all carbohydrates are evil, right? There's very much this degree of nuance here. And, and what I am saying though, is that we cannot, this person that I just described, one of them, you know, one of them, they cannot continue to eat the carbohydrates they are and expect their health to get better or continue to eat the carbohydrates they are and expect a drug to make up for it. Um, so much of these disorders is caused by chronically elevated insulin I'm not saying it's the only variable here, but in, me, in most instances, there's significant data to support this. You got to lower the insulin. And the best way to do that is controlling carbohydrates. Now, I, I, I'm quick to add, there is more to this, that if, if, if someone is looking at their health and wondering, well, might it, you know, what, to what degree is insulin resistance relevant here? Insulin resistance is, is likely in most people, if not all of us, um, a constellation of problems. One, the chronically elevated insulin, that without a doubt is causal to insulin resistance. There's no questioning that. Sec I mean, well, you could question it, but the data is very clear. Um, inflammation can cause insulin resistance. Stress can cause insulin resistance. And those are all very acute variables. You can detect insulin resistance very rapidly. Then there's another one, which is, which is more of, I guess would say a slow burn. And that is the consumption of refined seed oils or fake fats. And so as much as I am, and we both are very much advocates of fat eating, I am, I think we need to eat them. Um, and we need to eat more than most people are. It needs to come from ancestral fats, like animal fats and fruit fats, and the fruit fats being coconuts, avocados, olives, where our ancestors simply would have compressed the flesh of the fruit and then gotten an oil, as opposed to the seeds um, which, which is actually, that has become the single most common source of fat in the human diet. Christopher Ramsden at the NIH in the US here published a paper a few years ago finding that soybean oil is the single main source of fat in the, in the US diet. And I'm certain it's the same in Canada and throughout the Western world. In fact, even, even the Eastern world, I've given talks in the Middle East, I've given talks throughout Southeast Asia and, and Asia in general. And seed oils uh, that is abundant in all these refined foods, it's everywhere. So it's probably not a stretch to say soybean oil and similar seed oils are probably collectively the most common source of fat in the entire world. Yeah, that's intense. Um, <laughs> so would you say, because I have been hearing, you know, again, on the internet, I got to stop. I, I, I sound like such a dummy. I'm like, I get all my information <laughs> and topics of conversation on the internet, but yeah. where else you get them these days? You know, oh, there's like the, the new conversation that like, um, you know, vegetable oils are the new sugar, right? Because there's always got to mm -hmm. be one thing that's the worst. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine, I mean, these things are almost sort of like inextricably linked because both of them are so often found in these highly processed foods. And so right. sort of the first step being like, if you get rid of all that stuff that's in the middle of the grocery store, all that super pro um, processed packaged stuff that's full of preservatives and all these things, you're going to kind of cut out both of those negative things. Um, but would you say sort of in isolation that one is worse than the other? Like if you were going to tell somebody, like, here's the one thing I'm going to put on a billboard, would it be cut your carbs or cut your vegetable oils? Oh, that's a great question. Um, put you on the spot. Yeah. So, so we're, yeah, no, I mean, so we really are splitting hairs. Cause I, I like yeah. what you said. 
in reality, they come together. Yeah. It's refined starches and sugars coming with these seed oils. As, as much as I, I actually do, I would probably say in the average person, cutting out seed oils would probably have a better benefit over long term, just because if you're cutting out the seed oils, you basically cut out every processed food. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot that would come with that. Yeah. Um, but I would worry though, in us telling people, if that were the billboard, people would look at that and say, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. That's just, that's not on their mind, but to say, to point the finger at sugar, people intuitively know I shouldn't be eating this much sugar. You know, yeah. there's some, that's such an easy, that's a palatable approach, cut the sugar. But if you say cut the vegetable oil, there is a lot more nuance. There's a lot more conversation to be had. And I would worry, you know, in this, you know, you know, instance of say, what would we put on the billboard? You just cannot convey it all. Hey, everybody interrupting my own damn podcast here to tell you about today's show sponsor because they're important. And before you skip through this, I got to tell you, this is one of the biggest discounts that basically any company ever offers for things like this. It's 20% off. So maybe you want to listen to this one. I'll keep it brief. You guys know already, Bub's Naturals is my only source for collagen and MCT powder, which I am using consistently every day in my coffee, in my baking, in my protein oatmeal, in my bone broth, whatever I'm eating basically is going to have one or both of these products in it. Um, you know, what else do you need? Collagen, coffee, chocolate, organ meats, that's it. Uh, Bub's makes the best collagen. It mixes better than any other product I've tried. Their MCT goes into my iced coffee every morning and mixes really well. It makes it creamy, full of healthy fats for if I'm not going to have a big breakfast. I just kind of want to get going, but obviously still need my coffee. Uh, and also, this company gives a full 10% of their earnings to a charity that supports military veterans, which is an important cause um, and one that I support and will continue to support. So they're a company focused on giving back first before making money, which I think is actually pretty rare uh, in this day and age, and they just happen to make great products. So it's a win, win, win all around. Go to bubsnaturals.com and use the code MM20, which stands for Muscle Maven 20% off. So MM20 at bubsnaturals.com. Go get some collagen for your gut health and your beauty. Get some MCT to support those low-carb goals and do something to help the world all at the same time. All right, that's it. Back to the show. Mm-hmm. Because I like to talk about semantics on this podcast a lot, because I think a lot of people's misunderstanding comes from not truly not understanding like mm -hmm. the terms that we're talking about. And, you know, I watch a lot of your um, Instagram like videos and lives because you put out so much awesome free information there. Um, but when you're talking about things like um, studies that uh, involve like someone who's or groups that are on like low carb versus low fat diets, when you're saying low carb in this this circumstance, what are we talking about? What does low carb mean? Does it mean a hundred grams of carbs a day? Does it mean zero? Mm -hmm. Does it you know mm -hmm. because a lot of like my version of low carb is going to be different from yours and different from yeah. this person's and so on. So when we're talking about looking at a low carb diet or transitioning to a low carb diet, what does that mean generally speaking? Yeah, yeah. So the studies that I cite, it's never zero carb. That's for yeah. sure. They're typically um, they typically are around 25 to 100 grams of carbohydrate. Now, unfortunately, some studies that call a diet a low-carb diet uh, actually can get up into 150 or even 200 grams of carbs. So the term low-carb diet is 
is very um, subjective to the to the person who prepared the manuscript. To me, a low carb diet is going to be around 50 grams of carbohydrate. Okay. And depending on the person, it can even be up to 100 if the person's very physically active and has a lot of muscle mass. But if we're talking about an overweight, middle-aged person who's worried about diabetes, 100 grams is going to be too much. That I would not call is sufficiently low carb. You'd have to get closer down to that 50 gram. You know, with most of that coming from non-starchy um, vegetables and and low sh less sugary fruits. But yeah, so there's a lot of room for um, defining this and fine tuning it. <clears throat> but if someone has insulin resistance, the low carb diet will out will will outperform a low fat diet. And and, and unfortunately, it's the low fat diet that has been embraced that has been embraced across dietary guidelines in every country and virtually every health-related entity like the American Heart or the American Diabetes Association, same in Canada. It's always low fat, high carb. And, and that is ridiculous. Yeah. That is a way, uh, even in the late 80s, uh, Gerald Reven, who's kind of the, a legend of diabetes researchers, he published a paper where he took people with type 2 diabetes and put them on a low fat, high carb diet that perfectly aligned to the dietary recommendations of the American Diabetes Association, and they got worse. So we have known for 30 years that you put someone on that diet, you make the disease worse. And so back to your kind of comment earlier, um, like, is this a, consp a conspiracy theory? I don't think, you know, that term is too overused these days, yeah. but I would say that's a wonderful way to sell insulin. And these insulin manufacturers are some of the main funders of American Diabetes Association, uh, unfortunately. And so I think it is worth our while to wonder about vested interests. And we can yeah. call it a conspiracy theory if we want. Or, or also not, just but it doesn't capitalism. The... You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, a lot of yeah, things unchecked. that's- Yep. Yes. A lot of things that start out as this is a perfectly healthy, normal way of, you know, society functioning unchecked becomes something that's dysfunctional. I mean, that whole, um, did you, did you watch the, what's it called? The social dilemma, the one on the Netflix. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, like this is a perfect example, right? Where they're saying like, none of us started Facebook or whatever to ruin people's lives and make them suicidal and give them poor self-esteem. This work, this, yep. this was initially created as a way to connect people. And then it just, it proliferated yep. to a point that our, our brains aren't catch, able to deal with this. Right. So I think, yeah, cause yep. I mean, we can't ignore the, the, the um, incredible amount of influence that the, you know, food companies have and like their the sway and the money and, you know, we can't ignore that stuff. And again, it goes back to personal responsibility and it's easy to become overwhelmed and think like these big companies that their livelihood depends on our eating sugar and, and vegetable oils. It's very scary, but you can still you can make the decision with your dollars and what you choose to spend your money and your time and your attention on. Um, that's the only way that I think individuals yep. really can can make that change. So, yeah, um, I totally agree. In fact, your comment about foods and marketing, I am a huge advocate, and you and I, see, I, I, I are very much aligned on this. I believe we should eat more animal source foods. I think they are the single most nutritious foods for humans. We are built for these foods, and these are these are. Um, this is an industry does, that does not have tremendous marketing power. You no. do not see advertisements on conventional media sources for for eggs. Go get more eggs. Go get more. Go get, eat more kidney. You know, for heaven's sake. No, you will never. You just don't see this. They aren't the ones with all the marketing brand name. And so people talk about oh the meat lobby or the egg lobby. Oh, for heaven's sakes. 
if like, there are a lot of lobbyists for these things, they're doing a terrible job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you just don't see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see that all the time, too. People like posting on social media, like, just tell us how much the meat lobby is paying you. And I'm like, what? Really? Like, I know. where? Anyway, I wish. Yeah. I wish. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That would make life a lot easier for all of us. Um, okay. Let's talk about, you know, it's easy to, to sort of have carbs be the the number one topic of conversation, but there's two other uh, macronutrients mm -hmm. that are involved here too, protein and fat. How important is it if you are adjusting your diet to a low carb approach for health, how important is it to then make up by raising um, the, the yep. fat intake and healthy fat intake? Where does protein come into this equation? Because, you know, I've, I've heard of, you know, if you eat too much protein and that turns into glucose in your system and that can cause some problems. And I'm a big, like, I'm a protein girl. I'll only eat protein yeah. if you let me. Is that a problem? So let's talk about these other macronutrients and how mm -hmm. those come into play. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to note that they come into play together, that, that nature has the best proteins come with fat. There's no exception. The best proteins are dairy, egg, and meat. They always come with fat. And I think that is how we should consume them. I am also a huge advocate of protein. In fact, my kind of second rule of a, a smart dietary approach, the first being control carbs. My second is prioritize protein. And, and so I'm a huge advocate of getting protein. And I think most people don't get enough or they're getting the wrong kinds if they're focusing on silly plant proteins, which are inferior in every possible way to, to any, any single animal protein. And that's very important. Anyone listening, although I'm sure your listeners have already been schooled in this before, you, if you're trying to get your protein from plants, you are failing. And you're probably getting a lot of stuff you don't want, like um, protein inhibitors in your, in your gut to inhibit the digestion digestion inhibitors and um, heavy metals like lead and arsenic. So there's, there's no reason to focus on plants for your proteins. So yeah. animal source proteins are the best. They always come with fat. And so I also think there's something perhaps sometimes a little um, unnatural. And I do mean that word on purpose, but I wouldn't want someone to overinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's evil, but I think it's unnatural when we eat protein alone or when we eat fat alone. Um, that I think is, is also a little, well, unnatural. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I do think it's unnatural. Um, where when we eat fat, it's with protein. And so if, if someone was focusing on just, well, I'm going to get all my protein from th three or four scoops of whey, that's not how it's supposed to come. One, yeah. you, you won't digest it as well because when you eat protein, if you also can couple that protein consumption with fat, then the fat consumption is releasing bile acids into the intestines and bile helps the protein enzymes, the digestive enzymes work better. So some people who will say, well, I can't eat whey. I will tell them, well, how, what if you mix the whey with fat and suddenly they can eat it? Oh, that doesn't upset my stomach as much. It's because the fat helps you digest the protein better. So one, you'll digest the protein better when you eat it that way. And two, study, uh, uh, one particular study that I, I know of um, measured the degree to which um, these subjects in the study, human subjects had what's called muscle protein synthesis. So actually measuring the microscopic improvement in muscle size following a workout. When they worked out, there was a significant increase over not working out. When they gave them pure protein, there was a significant increase over the workout alone. When they gave them protein and fat, then it went even beyond the protein alone. So there's something inherently more anabolic about protein and fat. It's as if God knew or mother nature knew what was happening when 
when those two macronutrients were put together. So in nature, fat and protein come together. Now, someone would say, well, what about olive oil in butter, which is mostly fat? I would say, put that on your meat, put that on your animal food, your eggs, let that fat come with protein and never be worried about protein. The whole idea of I get too much protein, it's gonna kick me out of ketosis. BS, don't worry about it. Don't lose any sleep on that prioritize protein, make sure you're getting enough and let it come with fat. And when you feel so inclined, add more fat to that. You know, if someone's eating a lean steak or something, put some butter on that steak or you're cooking it with olive oil or whatever. Even more important, if you're eating something like chicken, which I'm not as much an advocate of, I do not believe our ancestors ate a lot of chicken. And Christopher Ramsden, a guy I mentioned earlier, he, he looked at the consumption of meat over the last hundred years and chicken was almost never consumed and now it's like the single most, in fact, I think it literally is yeah. the most commonly consumed meat because of our fear of fat. Yeah. And our ancestors kept chickens around for the eggs, not for the chicken meat itself. So eat the eggs for heaven's sakes. Um, and that eggs are perfect. They're a mix of one-to-one -one protein to fat. So again, I, I'm, I'm really kind of elaborating here, but control carbs, prioritize protein and fill with fat. Let that protein and that fat together fill you up so that you aren't going hungry as you're cutting the carbs. That is not intended to be a calorie cutting mechanism. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about that at that point. You know, look, scrutinizing calories to me is a next level concern. Yes. Follow those three pillars, control carbs, prioritize protein, fill with fat. Don't count the calories. Let your body adjust to that. And then you'll get to a new normal. You undoubtedly will lose weight. Then start looking at your calories if that's the next step and you need to get to a lower level of, of body weight control, for example. Yep. Um, but that would certainly be enough to improve your insulin sensitivity and, and all those disorders that the, the kind of the wheel of misfortune that's coming from insulin resistance. Okay. I love all of that. Super, super helpful. And I love too, that we're again, talking about like the foundational level stuff first, like just eat, like you said, worry about, you know, calories and specifics later. That's, that's something that we like to latch onto. Cause again, it's sexier mm -hmm. and it's like, how are we going to lose weight? Yep. But like the health foundation first, but calories do matter. It's just less yep. and it matters less yep. and it matters later. Um, I have to go down a rabbit hole with you right now because I just mm -hmm. really want to talk about it with somebody um, like yourself. Have you watched the uh, the reality show alone? Oh, you know I know show? exactly what you're going to get into. I know I had this exact conversation with my brother just like two <laughs> weeks ago. The guy who like got rendered all the moose fat. Is this what you're going to oh, talk okay. about? Okay, actually, well, more specifically, but oh, have, okay, you, okay. have you watched it? You haven't no, watched I've it seen little clips. Okay. See, yeah, I've seen clips. Okay. You're, you're a busy man. So what, but you know, when you have some downtime, maybe over the holidays, yeah. like yeah. highly recommend it. Like if we're talking about what reality TV should be, this is about as real and impressive I need to watch it. as it yeah. gets. I mean, these people, so just a quick background for the people who are listening, who haven't seen it yet. It's a reality show where they stick people out in, depending on the season in the Arctic or maybe Vancouver Island, like very, very rugged natural spaces with nothing but 10, 10 tools that they choose mm -hmm. and they stay out there until somebody, until the last man stands. Until they can't. Yeah. Until they can't. And it's incredible. So in the later seasons, it's really like professional survivalists. Like these are not just like me going out there trying to like, yeah. you know, build like a fort Like that guy or who went and like live in Russia for periods of time, right? Yes. 
nuts. Like it is, it is so incredibly and impressive and intense to see how human beings actually lived for the vast majority of human nature existence, mm -hmm. right? They were living mm -hmm. in constant discomfort. And the only things that they cared about were a shelter to keep them warm and dry and comfortable and food. That was it. And also protecting themselves from other predators. They didn't care about social media. They didn't care about who agreed or disagreed with them on whatever. That was all that they cared about. And, but one of the things nutritionally that was so interesting to me and as somebody who spends a lot of their time studying and researching and, and trying to synthesize information for, you know, a, a mainstream audience. Um, the thing that was so fascinating to me was no matter what these people were into when they came into it. And most of them, I'm going to assume, I mean, they were omnivores, like they're hunters, they're people mm -hmm, who understand mm -hmm. yeah. animal protein, but all that mattered when they started losing weight and they were out there for a week, two weeks, three months, all that mattered to them was fat. They did not give shit about anything else. They didn't care about the little bit of carbs they could find with some berries. They barely even cared about, like it was animal fat. They needed it in the core of their being. And it was yep. really interesting for me, again, as somebody who knows that on a like theoretical level, that fat really is absolutely crucial and important, but just to see that that was their like literally only focus was how am I going to get fat into my body? Because that is what I need. And they'd eat a bite of whatever their moose fat or some fish. And it completely changed their everything about like their energy, yep. their clear head, their clarity, their ability to do what they needed to do. It was so fascinating. But to continue on that, a lot of the animals that they were hunting were very lean animals. So things mm -hmm. like rabbit, they could get a lot of rabbit. And apparently there's something, it's called like rabbit star protein starvation yep. or something yep. Yep. where animals that are so lean, so they could be eating a rabbit every two days and they're still starving to death because they were only getting protein. So they had zero carbs, zero fat. It was just, it was really like, it was eye-opening because this is as real and objective as it gets. It's a human being out in the in the natural yep. world their only choice is to find what they can find to survive and fat was it that's what they needed period it's just fascinating yep. oh i i in fact i think there is so one i think that the focus on chicken actually can get to the person get a person to the point where they kind of not that they're going to develop rabbit starvation like the early explorer, explorers were but chicken is too lean it will not in my by my standards and admittedly this is me not speaking necessarily as a scientist now it is not going to fill you like beef will you need something with fat in it and there's some we often talk about fat as just a fuel source in fact and i'm always quick and in fact even i will say this i think first of all it is wrong to look at protein as a calorie source. We should not be counting protein as part of the calories when we're assessing, I, because it is only in those instances of starvation, really, that protein is going to be a significant source of calories. We simply do not use amino acids for energy in all but the most rare instances. So don't look at protein as a calorie, look at protein as a building block, it's not a fuel. So then it leaves us with the other two macros, which are commonly referred to as fuel. I don't disagree with that sentiment. It is in fact what we're burning. We're burning glucose and fat to, to, to uh, meet virtually all the caloric needs of the body. Now there are some other little inputs like ketones and lactate even, but it's really glucose and fat. Glucose is only a fuel. It is 100% fuel. That's it, done. 
Fats are not just fuel. We need fats for synthesizing and building every cell. Many hormones are fat-derived, they're lipid-derived. We need fat for far more than just fuel. They are essential for multiple reasons. And so to your point, how in nature, we are fat hunters. And there is an, I don't know what he would describe himself as, um, I think he's in Israel, a scientist named Mickey Bandori, and he has a really compelling manuscript entitled something like Man the Fat Hunter and how our ancestors would focus only on these big game that were fatter, that had more fat in them as a fuel source. We as humans are, have, a, have a strong need for, for fat. And in fact, even fat on our own bodies even a lean human is considered obese by standards of any other primate. Compare any human to any other primate, and we are much, much fatter, and we're supposed to be. So we need fat. Not only we need to eat it, we need to store it, and fat is more than a fuel. It is, it is structurally important to every cell in the body and, and many, many hormones and more than that. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's your homework is to watch alone. I recommend season yeah. six and seven. They're really good. Okay. It was also okay. the other the other interesting thing watching it too, which is again just a reminder of something we already know. But um, you know, a lot of these people came in with a reasonable, healthy amount of fat. Like you don't see too many of these guys coming in that are like even chubby by normal standards. Mm -hmm. Some of them were probably too lean. Like one of my comments was like, you didn't try to just fatten up a little bit before you yeah, went out really. and starved for three months. But but to your point. These, these folks were essentially living off their body fat for months and they did, you know, like obviously your performance is going to start failing. Your cognition is going to start failing. Yep. You're going to experience a lot of symptoms, but these people were eating almost nothing in some cases and were surviving off their body fat for months. So again, another just sort of like perspective reminder for those of us and I, you know, myself included sometimes who, you know, could not bear the thought of going a day without eating. <laughs> like these people mm -hmm, were mm -hmm. building log cabins from scratch on zero calories and they were, they were doing all right. So anyway, very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, and, and lest, lest we curse our body fat. Because yeah. we, we, we look at our body fat and we curse it, we pinch it, we jiggle it and think, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. No, we, it, we must have it. It is yeah. it, it, getting too lean, especially for a woman, mm -hmm. assuming that much of your audience is female, women must have a, a, a meaningful amount of body fat in order to just be healthy and, and let alone fertile. There is, there is an actual biological imperative to have that reserve of energy. If, if the woman is, is wanting to get pregnant, she bears the metabolic burden of fertility. The husband does not. A man can get exquisitely lean um, and, and, and be healthy, including maintain normal fertility. And if a woman starts to get even close to the level of leanness, like let's say, you know, something under 10% body fat, she, depending on her body, she gets to the point where she might not have enough fat. And, and now there's not enough leptin in order to tell the brain, okay, we can be fertile. Let's let the process go on. Yeah. You must have a certain level of leptin from a certain amount of fat cells in order to let the body be fertile at all. Um, so, so, so we must have fat lest we ever curse it. We need to eat it. We need to store it and thank heavens for both. That is a great, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of the last big topic I wanted to, to talk about before I let you go. I, we could talk forever, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. Um, is this, this uh, you know, the, the fact that the story is always, as always, a little bit more complicated for women? And even the idea, and this is something that I just actually kind of recently learned, is that women become more or less insulin resistant, or I suppose insulin sensitive, mm -hmm. depending on which way you look at it, depending on the time in our cycle. So we, 
those kind of numbers are fluctuating for us all the time, I, yep. I guess, even with a healthy cycle. So can you kind of speak to just more specifically how it we women may need to look at this differently, if at all, in terms of managing like healthy body fat levels, healthy insulin sensitivity, all of that? Yeah, yeah. So I think there is one note of warning then with what I said earlier, go in and get your fasting insulin measured. It is very possible that a woman will kind of measure this at you know the wrong time, so to speak, and her insulin will be higher than, than it would be otherwise. And she might look at that and think, oh, gee, Ben and Ashley said it should be six or, you know, around 30 picamoles and yeah. mine was, you know, 10 points higher. I would say don't panic. Um, look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio because those numbers will not flux quite as right. readily as the insulin can. That will give a more long-term view of it, if you will. And if your triglyceride to HDL ratio is good, then don't worry about the insulin. It was probably fine. You just kind of caught it at a bad time. But then even with, with regards to pregnancy, pregnancy is one of the very few instances in the human where you have insulin resistance on purpose. So from month, from day zero to month nine, if you track a woman during the course of her pregnancy, she will become increasingly insulin resistant throughout the course of the pregnancy. It's supposed to happen. It is a way to let her store more fat. It is a way to keep her insulin higher, to let baby store more fat. And you need insulin for lactation. It's one of the many kind of hormones that go into that cocktail of facilitating lactation. It's, you know, it's more complicated than just prolactin. So in, you know, I, I'd already mentioned this, Kind of, so I won't, uh, I'll try not to say the same thing here, but uh, a woman uh, has a need for fat that a man doesn't. It's a very different relationship. Um, literally, it's a very different process for her body. Why she's storing fat, where she's storing fat is different from a man. A woman stores more subcutaneous fat than a man does. If a woman and a man are both gaining fat at the same rate, relatively much more of her fat will be subcutaneous, the pinch pull jiggable kind, which she might not like because maybe she won't look as good in the bikini or, or a tank top or whatever but it's there for a reason. Mm -hmm. Subcutaneous fat produces more leptin, for example, than visceral fat does where the man's storing more of his fat. And, and, and it's less inflammatory. The visceral fat accumulates macrophages more, which is not good. And so for, 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 uh, if, if there was someone listening to this and, and I'm not the right person to say this necessarily, cause I'm some, you know, I'm some dude, but I would, I would want to say to a gal listening, who's, who's frustrated with her fat, um, it's there for a reason um, and, and different bodies will store fat in different places and there's nothing you can do about that. If there's a gal who's upset that she has more fat on her triceps, for example, um, than she likes, that is genetic and she will have to get exquisitely lean mm -hmm. everywhere else in order for that one last problem spot to come from. And, and, and so, you know, I, it's easy for me to say, and I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying, I can saying, speak well, to just, this too, though. I can absolutely yeah. speak to this too. In fact, maybe I ought to just stop and let you speak to oh, it because as, as someone who has a, a, you know, large triceps and I can, I can literally have like a visible six pack and still like be able to do yeah. this to my triceps. So, I mean, I totally get it. I think yep. one of the frustrations for women is, and you know, it completely depends on the era, like how, what we like in women these days, we like them a little bit thicker. We like them a little, like, I mean, I, I don't even try to keep up anymore. It's more just about feeling good with myself and, and being healthy. Good. But, good. but the I agree. And it's easier said than done. But the tough thing about this is I think most of us, and especially the women who are listening to this, get it. They get that it's not, we're not lucky like dudes to be able to walk around with a six pack year round and be healthy. And we have all this yeah. fat that we have to contend with and it's fine. But how do we know 
what the healthy, reasonable, normal amount is. And then when it starts to go overboard into this is excess fat now, and this isn't good because we're, we're, we're from such a young age, we have this very problematic, um, uh, relationship with body fat and with our bodies in general. So it's very hard for the individual woman sometimes. And because we aren't good at being objective with ourselves to know this is perfectly healthy body fat versus you're too low and you're too hard on yourself versus you're 30 pounds overweight and it would be good for you to lose some fat. Like how do we, how Mm -hmm, do we mm -hmm. parse that? Yeah. Yeah. So one, one way, what a great topic. One thing she could do, first of all, if you have blood measurements that can kind of like actually quantifiably confirm that you're healthy, that's one, that's one good, that's one consolation. It's one sort of thing to be happy about. Alternatively, she, well, not alternatively, in addition to that, she could measure her waist to hip ratio. And I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. In a woman, I think it's supposed to be less than like 0.85 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's just good evidence that if, if you, where you're storing fat, if your waist divided by hips is less than around 0.85, then, then it's good. Then, then the fat, you are storing it in a good way and it's less reason to be worried about. Now, again, I know easier said than done. There's the whole kind of social um, mm-hmm. aspect of it all, but I can't speak to that. One, I'm not a gal. Two, I'm, 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 I'm a scientist who, who does not, I study fat cells. I don't study the emotional <laughs> impact of fat cells. Yeah. So, but, but if the waist to hip ratio isn't a good ratio, then another reason to just say, all right, well, I might have more fat than I want, but at least I'm putting it in the right places. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then again, just to kind of close the loop on this, because obviously I know we could speak about it a, a lot more, but you know, we talk about things like um, carb timing, um, carb mm-hmm. type, things like that. How do we approach this again with with women and the natural cycle meaning that at different parts of the month, we're going to be more insulin resistant. Should we, if we're paying attention and tracking our cycle and and our fertility and all of those things, um, should there be parts of our, our month that we are avoiding carbs, that we are more lenient with it that, you know, cause I, I also hear a lot of, um, like on women's podcasts, people talking about like, you're going to be hungrier right around or before your mm-hmm. period. Cause your body's mm-hmm. doing all this work. Your temperature is going to be raising later in the, um, cycle. You're just going to be hungrier. You need to kind of honor it. Don't, don't fight if your body's telling you to eat more and things like that, but we're also craving around our period chocolate and comfort food and junk food. And in a way, is that helping us or is that hurting us more, but our body's telling us to have it? Like, where do we go from here? Well, I do not think it's helping. Um, uh, so yeah, what a great question. And I, I I cannot answer that as definitively as, as I'm sure um, people would like, I would say, don't worry about it. Um, I, I, I would say, find a plan and just say, this is my plan. And then, and then have, have backups for when you think you need them mm-hmm. at the worst, you know, at, at the, at, at your weakest or at your most tempted, yeah. have a plan, have yeah. a plan for it. But I, I don't, I don't know. I cannot speak to when it would be optimally timed to be shifting the macros, to be a little more carb friendly, for example, or a little more strict. I, I don't know yeah. when, when that would be. No, and I appreciate that answer. And I mean, I feel like some of the things that I kind of um, work on for my own health and that I tell other women and men, because I think that at the end of the day, this really does kind of apply to all of us, um, Mm -hmm. is is finding this balance between um, a diet and an approach that 
doesn't feel um, so restrictive that it's not going to be sustainable, that you know is supporting your health first and foremost, but it's got to be something you kind of enjoy as well. And, you know, I make this joke about like, if you're not hungry enough to eat a steak, you're not actually hungry. And I I believe that to be true because in all of my experience with um, becoming fat adapted and, and eating a keto diet and my paleo background, and then kind of dabbling with the carnivore thing for a while, I have never found anything to be more satiating than animal protein. And I, yep. I've had a hard time with a strict keto diet for that very reason that I can override my satiety signals when it comes to fat and keep eating it even when I don't want to anymore. I don't find that to be the case with protein. And I love animal protein, but it'll tell mm-hmm. me strongly, like, you're good. You don't need to eat any more steak or ground yeah. beef or whatever. Um, so I think that, you know, again, it's like this balance of like, don't treat yourself too harshly if you're craving something and you kind of want to give into it. But maybe, like you said, have a plan where when you're feeling these cravings, maybe you eat something high protein and nourishing first and you give yourself some time. And then if you're still like, I'm going to die if I don't eat this chocolate, then maybe that's a conversation you have next. But but having a plan in place, I think, is always the, the smart way to go for sure. Oh, I, I agree. Yep. Yep. So if, yeah. if it's an evening time, I would encourage someone, you know, if they're most tempted in the evenings, have a bowl of hard boiled eggs in the fridge, ready to go crack open a hard boiled egg, roll it in some salt, eat that, drink some water, and then do a kind of a gut check 10 or 15 minutes later, you'll probably be able to get through it. So I think there is something to be said for strategies. I've found in the evenings when I'm my most tempted, I will drink more uh, carbonated water like club mm. soda. And that just sort of helps kind of put my put my cravings to kind of to bed a little early. Thank goodness. But yeah, have a plan and then, and then tweak it, you know, manipulate it as needed. Uh, But yeah, but be careful. So too often I would just, I wouldn't want someone to say, I'm saying, well, if you're really tempted, then you ought to indulge. No, uh, neither of us is saying that um, because there is something to be said for just kind of the grit that comes from getting through a transition and realize, no, wait, I'm, I'm addicted to something sweet, or some people get addicted to to full. Some people need to feel uncomfortably full in order for them to be done. And that is not healthy. That is not natural. You should not need to gorge yourself to the point of feeling sick before you can say, okay, now I did it. I'm done. No. And so there is something to be said for the grit that comes from from getting to just removing that temptation or somehow getting over it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we've been talking about this whole call, it's kind of the idea of personal responsibility, personalized nutrition, um, and, you know, being even too obsessed with health can be a problem when it becomes dysfunctional, but there's, there's a lot to be said for having discipline, um, and sort of preset plans and behaviors that, that help you move forward instead of, uh, back. So, um, Ben, yep. I, I feel like I'm going to have to listen back to this and take notes because there's yeah. so much, and we could, we could, I'm going to have to have you back on. Cause I know there's like a list here of things we didn't get to cover, but, um, I like where this conversation went because my goal was to have a conversation that I feel like people can tangibly take some stuff mm-hmm. away and, and start looking at what they're doing and their behaviors and like making some changes immediately. And I feel like we accomplished that. Um, so I really appreciate your time. Um, where can folks uh, get the book? Where's the best place to reach out to you and talk to you and learn more and, and all that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Ashley, thanks again. What a, what a delightful conversation. So the book is Why We Get Sick. People can find it anywhere books are sold. If, if any of this topic today was interesting, you can take a much deeper dive, but it doesn't get too complicated. You know, I think 
I think the writing is pretty lucid. So uh, it, it just sort of uh, helps kind of fill in some of the gaps and stuff we didn't have time to get to. Um, also, in, in an effort to make low carb easy, I've designed what I think is the best low carb shake. Uh, it's a low carb, high fat, high protein, importantly. And it's uh, people can learn more about that at Get Health. And that's H-L-T-H for health, gethealth.com. Uh, and uh, I'm moderately active on social media. Like you said, I try to put out these little snippets of kind of metabolic insight videos, mostly on Instagram, actually. It's funny you say how the internet's becoming just so polarizing and toxic. I've actually done much less with Twitter. Twitter used to be the only way I communicated and I never did anything with Instagram. And I've just found Twitter to get so, it's so hostile and ugly there. So I don't do too much there anymore. And I just love Instagram. It's just a really fun, nicer crowd. So on Instagram, people can find me at Ben Bickman and Bickman is B-I-K-M-A-N, no C, Ben Bickman, PhD. Yeah, it's funny. I agree with you. I was like a late adopter to Instagram because I'm a writer. So I was like, Twitter's my medium. It's words. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. And now it's just like a place for people to yell at each other. So I'm like, yep. all right, I'll stick to Instagram for now. Yep, and I can I can also say, um, we were talking about this offline. I've tried your product and the chocolate macadamia is just like, Oh, that's great. So, so good. Highly recommend people check this out. We'll, we'll talk offline more about that, yep. but it's an amazing yep. product. Um, thank you again for your time. Let's do this again in the new year. I'd love it. Thanks, Ashley. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to my first episode of 2021. If you liked this one and you want me to keep going, because this is generally speaking, a thankless job that I, lo that I love, but it's a lot of work. So if you want me to keep doing this, please, please show your support by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, download, share however you can. Please do your part to help me spread the word so that I can keep doing this this year because I love it. Um, thank you to my show sponsor, Bubs Naturals. They are the best grass-fed collagen and MCT powder company out there. They give 10% of their earnings to charity, which is unheard of, and they offer the best discounts. So they will give you 20% off of any of their products if you use the code MM20 at checkout. That's Muscle Maven 20, so MM20. Uh, their new product, the um, Fountain of Youth, that is basically collagen with some Mackey berry and deliciousness is my new favorite um, because, you know, collagen tastes like nothing and you can mix it into everything. So it's very versatile, but this is actually like a really nice beverage that you want to drink that also is good for your skin and hair and nails and digestion. Love that company. Love those guys at Bubs. Um, so thank you all for your support. Um, thank you for being here. Give me your feedback. I love it as always. Best way to do that is on Instagram. You can reach out to me at the Muscle Maven. Or you can send me an email um, through my website, which is ashleyvanhouden.com. And there you can also find out more information about my nose to tail cookbook, It Takes Guts, which people are loving and tagging pictures of guts all the time to me now. And that's, that's my life and I love it. Um, and you can also find out more information, like I said earlier, about my jacked back pull-up program um, on my website and uh, on Instagram. So that's it. Thank you so much. I hope you join me next week. Have an awesome day, guys.